Rebecca Costa, and I'm a technology and science futurist and sociobiologist. And on today's program, we're going to be talking about the long tail repercussions of COVID-19, as well as how AI and machine learning can help us to predict when these threats are coming. Welcome to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites, the most binge-worthy podcast on the internet. If you'd like to join in the conversation about today's show or any of our past shows, you go over to Curiosity Bites page on Facebook. My name is Dove Barron. I am your host, and you can find out more about me at DoveBaron.com. That's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. Uh, what I've always been deeply curious about is the subjective blurring of lines between facts and beliefs. For certain groups of people, at certain times, facts outweigh beliefs, while for others, beliefs can outweigh or overshadow facts. Simple example is, is it possible for a scientist to also be a person of faith? Of course it is, but we challenge with that. However, at a mass level, is there a point where it, as in the world's information, becomes overwhelming, where we feel that we can't just cope and we fall back into our desire for the simple, even if it's a simple lie? If the masses become overwhelmed with facts, how does that impact leadership and political policy? Moreover, are we seeing the evidence that we are on the verge of a massive and potentially devastating change and while ignoring the facts because simple lies would be more comfortable. Well, that's the rabbit hole we're about to enter on this delicious series of Curiosity Bites. So grab a beverage and find a cozy corner because our guest is the acclaimed technology and science futurist, Rebecca Costa. Rebecca Costa's landmark work has been heralded, heralded by global thought, innovation, and business leaders from around the world. She has been featured in the Washington Post, Newsmax, USA Today, New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, and other leading publications. She's heralded as a preeminent global expert on the subject of fast adaptation and the recipient of prestigious Edward O. Wilson Biodiversity Technology Award. Rebecca revealed how AI and predictive analytics hold the key to solving the dangerous and systemic issues and offers a unique scientific perspective on the headlines of today. So ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and once again, helping to welcome the truly fascinating multi-New York Times bestselling author of The Watchman's Rattle, a radical new theory of collapse and on the verge, social biologist and futurist, Rebecca Costa! Now, Doug, that's quite an introduction. What do you find yourself most curious about right now? What's the biggest question you're finding yourself looking into uh, for the answers? Uh, well, as a futurist, uh, I'm always interested in the long tail of an event like COVID-19. Um, yes. And not just from the standpoint of, of uh, the economic repercussions, but the mental health repercussions, the, the long tail of vaccines uh, after many generations, um, you know, it's the longitudinal studies that interest me the most. Mm -hmm. And we won't know what those long tail repercussions are for 100, 200 years. Um, and, and so using predictive analytics and AI, I'm very interested in the models that are forecasting what those long tails uh, outcomes might be. <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot of uh, talk around the um, RNA uh, changing uh, 
because of the the uh, because of the vaccines, and that we we may not see the impact of that for as you said for generations, and and I think that that's making some people pretty nervous about taking the vaccine, but at the same time that desire to get back. And one of the things that you and I talked about previously was this the the long tail effects of not just the vaccine but of COVID nineteen and the pandemic and what has come out of that. And obviously the economic impact of it is going to be devastating with a multi-trillion dollar um, uh, stimulus package, but also the mental health issues that are coming out of this that are going to be devastating to not just leaders, uh, but the men in the street. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I know you've been researching that too. Well, I have been, and that's something that we do have a lot of longitudinal data on. Yes. Nobel leading economists in Europe have studied the effects of involuntary unemployment uh, over 50, 80, and 100 years, tracking the same people. Mm. And one of the things that we have discovered is that there are very few things that, that will affect almost all humans for the rest of their life that will affect their happiness, their ability to thrive and feel joyful. Uh, you know, even studying people that come back from disasters and wars, um, studying people who uh, have had, you know, starvation, devastation, uh, we find that most of them, the vast majority of them, recover and they find a way to be joyous, happy human beings. But one of the um, sure fast ways that we've discovered that people don't recover and are never as happy as they were before that event is uh, involuntary unemployment. Wow. When you have a long prolonged period of involuntary unemployment, you will never be as happy uh, as you were before the unemployment that your baseline for joy and happiness uh, decreases and never comes back. And that is for the majority of human beings. And I, as I have uh, said to you previously, this mainly affects men yeah. who for millions of years had the role in the tribe as the provider and protector and when they no longer can serve that function, remember that's in your DNA. Yes. And, and when they no longer can uh, uh, serve that function, uh, that's very devastating and leads to uh, high levels of suicide, addiction, divorce, yeah. alienation from children, and so on. Yeah, I mean, the, the socioeconomic issues are obvious, but the emotional ones, the mental health ones are, I, th I feel like we are a society that just ignores this. Um, you know, I, where I live, I live in what, uh, uh, I'm kind of ashamed to say that I live in one of the places of the greatest wealth gap um, in the world. Um, the literally the street I live on is the highest per highest valued uh, per square foot in all of Canada. And literally half a mile walk away from me is the poorest area um, where people are homeless and, and needles and all those kinds of things. And, and we, we think that we're going to uh, 
fix things with money or by giving people money, but that doesn't work. And, you know, we, and we've ignored the mental health. Now, these are many of these people are people who used to be in mental institutions or were taken care of who were put out on the street and given a check and a checkup, but that's not doing it. So now we come to this place of this idea that you can fix people with money. And I think you can take care of their other needs, but not who they are. So, you know, you and I were talking be before about the idea of a universal income and the desire to give that to people. And I understand that I want to help people lift up. But if you don't give them dignity, and which is what you were talking about with giving people work, they they never recover. I mean, I grew up in the UK. And I remember in the 70s, the four day work week and, and the, the, the power problems and all those things, Margaret Thatcher, Ted Heath, all those things that were going on. And I remember watching men slide downhill into deeper and darker depression and alcoholism because they had no dignity, what I call dignity money. Yes, that's right. Uh, remember, there is a biological imperative when it comes to men as protectors and also as providers. Mm -hmm. And just because we're living in a modern society where women like myself have professional careers and contribute to the wealth of the family and, and the security of the family, sure. um, that, that hasn't necessarily changed. Our, bi our biological changes take millions of years to cleanse themselves out of the human DNA. And so uh, statistically, this isn't think something we're just making up or that we think no. to be true. We can see the statistics when there's massive unemployment and there's never been such massive unemployment as we had in, un, under a COVID-19 shut, economic shutdowns. And so we can expect that this will affect men, particularly men who have families, mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, depending on them, it will affect them in greater uh, um, degrees. But what's wonderful about having this conversation is to put some perspective for those men and say, it is not your fault. This is in your DNA. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect your mental health, right? And it's not because you are a failure or you did not protect or provide. Don't let those outcomes uh, occur in your life you know, go out, get help, uh, get, get into a support group with other men. These are things that you can do to, to help those repercussions not occur because we know they will occur otherwise. Um, and, yeah. and to your point, I have never been a fan of any giving people money. Uh, it, it, as you point out, uh, dignity is the issue, right? Yeah. We are a beast of burden. We were designed by nature to not only move, we need to be moving. We yeah. need to be, we can't be sitting in front of screens all day. Uh, and this is directly tied to our ability to be happy. We need to be with other humans. Uh, longitudinal studies out of Harvard University where we've tracked people for 85 years, find that the happiest, most content, most fulfilled humans claim to have at least two people in their lives that they can turn to in times of trouble. Yes. If you don't have two people you can name, you better go out and get them yeah. because that's going to do a lot more for you than winning the lottery. The money isn't the issue, as you point out. It's really uh, paying attention 
to what our human needs are. The need to connect, the need to have productive work and to feel that we are doing something of meaning and value. Those are the things. So when you try to, you know, it's the wrong medicine for the wrong disease. When you give people money, you don't address what the actual need is. You know, you're addressing something else. Well, I, I, again, I think that we're, we're addressing the need of objectivism, which is that we believe that people um, will have autonomy and be happy if they have uh, their own money or more money. But we know the research is in, it's not, it's not a, an idea, is that money doesn't make people happier. It does make you happier, but for a very short period of time, and it doesn't last. So as you know, as as we had talked about before, that we know the research is very clear that human beings have to have a tribe. We need to connect, as you said, at least two people that we can trust, that we feel that bond to, and we need meaningful um, work. And what does meaningful work mean? It doesn't mean necessarily working for a company. It just means that the work I do is meaningful to me. And if my if I'm driven by I need to be the provider for my family, and my work is tilling the ground, that's just as important as starting a startup or any other thing. But is it meaningful to you? And I think that we've lost a sense of that. That's where we tend to keep falling down, we keep pursuing more and more stuff. And we lose the sense of worth and value and meaning in our lives. And as we talked about before, the there because of this, there's been a biological change. You know, you were saying about the impact on men, but there's been a biological change on men. We know fertility has gone down. Uh, that men, you know, uh, when when um, interviewed and researched, the were men are less interested in sex than ever before yet porn addiction has gone up why is that because of inadequacy which is a psychological issue so men are feeling inadequate with their partners they're less sexually driven they feel they should be sexually driven they are attracted to porn but they're not interested in their partners because their testosterone has gone down their testosterone has gone down their testicles have gotten smaller and the scientific research is in their penises have gotten smaller because we have no dignity. So this psychological piece is changing our biology. And, and I feel like we're missing it. I feel like we're missing it, Rebecca. I feel like I want to, you know, like we keep talking about, you know, we got to get the jobs back. Yes, but why? Not, we just yes, got to get the jobs the, back. The why? why is important, but bear in mind as an evolutionary biologist, that I believe that 155 years ago, this problem began to occur. That when Charles Darwin introduced his theor then theory of, of evolution, uh, we believed immediately that if you believed in evolution, you could not believe in religion. And if you believed in religion, you certainly had to reject the theory of evolution. But as you know, as a scientist, uh, I live with the ambivalence that don't fit together every single day of my life. There was a time when the theory of evolution, uh, the theory of um, relativity didn't fit mathematically with the theory of gravity. Uh, Newton and Einstein, uh, there, there, there were some contradictions uh, between their two theories. And so, um, 
it, thank goodness, as a scientist, we didn't throw one out and say, well, that means one has to be wrong. It doesn't mean that evolution is wrong and it doesn't mean that, that your religion is wrong. No. If you take that position and you reject um, the long path that humans have traveled that their DNA has traveled to get to this point in time, you will never have a society that acknowledges human biological needs and drives. And what you wind up creating is, a, is an imaginary society that's antagonistic to what we need. Yes. You, you know, you look at uh, unemployment as a sign of economic health, as opposed to, uh, a sign of coming mental health issues, yes. right? It's a forecaster of Absolutely. mental health issues, not just mental health depression, not just mental health addiction, mental health mass violence. You yes. know, if we will go back to what do humans need? Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this to you that when we were younger in school, you and I, we were taught that there was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You remember that pyramid? And cool. at the bottom was food, shelter, water. You know, you, you had to get those basic needs met. Yep. And then as you got to meet those, you started moving up to a sense of belongingness, mm -hmm. right? And a sense of meaning and fulfillment. And we all kind of believed that, that if you could get food, shelter, safety checked off, right? in this wonderful uh, economy uh, that everybody would start to feel fulfilled and happy and, 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 uh, and help each other out. And, and there was sort of this utopian idea that if we followed Maslow's hierarchy of needs, everything would be fine. And that fit perfectly with the idea of capitalism, by the way. It, it, yep. it, it worked really nicely and he became massively popular, but something has gone wrong terribly wrong because the standard of living everywhere in the world has gone up. There are more people that have shelter, that have food, that have medicines and money than at any other time in all of human history. Yes. And yet suicides are exponentially growing. Addiction is growing. Mass violence is growing. So something is not right about that hierarchy of needs because if Maslow was right, we should be seeing more fulfillment, more meaningfulness, more belongingness, and we're not seeing that. Why do you think that is? Well, as I said, I think that it's come about from this idea of the American dream, which has become a nightmare, this idea that we're going to be happy because we've got stuff. So we've learned that we, you know, we think we're meeting our needs with a bigger TV set. We think we're me meeting our needs with a, a fancier car or a bigger house, but we're not looking at the emotional mental needs of the individuals. And that is where we fall down. So we've gotten into an objectivism mentality. Um, and we think that money and power are the solution. And I think that that's where it all falls down. We stop looking at each other as humans and understanding. I mean, I'm old enough that I traveled a lot when I was young and I traveled a lot to, to study in different countries. And I was immediately, you know, I grew up 
incredibly poor, but I was incredibly shocked by going to countries where people had seemingly even less than I had had as a kid who were seemed to be seemed, I will not say anything different, seemed to be quite happy versus people I knew who were wealthy, who I know today in, in my, uh, in my blessed work that I get to do with people who are very powerful and very wealthy, who are bloody miserable. So I was fascinated by why are these people happy and these people are miserable when if it's about the stuff, it's not about the stuff. And I think that that's the I think that that's the poison pill. I think that's the, the I think that's the mass hypnosis we all fell under. I think that that's well, again, the getting back to our biology. We now know, right, that when positive experiences happen to us, like we go by that really large flat screen TV that we were really, really wanting for a long time, mm -hmm. that our fulfillment and our happiness peaks at the moment that we buy it. And then it's, it's like down. skiing downhill. It, it, the, the amount of gratification we get just drops off at such a phenomenal rate. Yep. We call this hedonic adaptation, yep. the, the, the rate at which we're going to be happy and then at the rate at which that happiness is going to decline, right? It's interesting when negative experiences happen to us, we adapt much slower. Mm -hmm. It's more like a, a, a slow slope. Right. But when good things happen to us, like winning the lottery, we're very, very happy, and then we it drops off incredibly fast. This was uh, studied by uh, a fellow by the name uh, that, that uh, unfortunately he was studying happiness, and he wound up committing suicide. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, yes, uh, it, it, it's a very ironic story, but uh, but but um, he studied this out of I believe it was the University of Michigan, and he was studying lottery winners and mm -hmm. paraplegics. People who won the lottery, were they happier 10, 20, 40 years out compared to people who had a sudden accident and became paraplegic? Right. And what he found was in a very short amount of time, usually between two and three years, that they were no less happy or more happy either group than they were before the event happened to them. Now you can't imagine, gee, if I became paraplegic overnight, you would think that that would absolutely wipe out my happiness. But those people that were very optimistic before and, and, you know, and, and generally happy before they became paraplegic, they suddenly found new technologies, new wheelchairs, new uh, breathing devices where they could type on a, a, on a keyboard and they became relatively happy within their life. And the, and the lottery winners, they went back to about the happiness they had before they, had the, they won the lottery. So there is this thing called hedonic adaptation. This is why buying things and having money doesn't work. Right. It works for five minutes yes. and then it starts trailing off and trailing off. And a week later, you hardly notice the new uh, flat screen TV. Right. Yeah. So, so it's very important to kind of do an assessment within yourself for mm -hmm. everyone that's listening right now and say, 
how fast do I adapt to good things that happen to me? Yes. And how fast do I come back from bad things that are happening to me? And what is my rate of hedonic adaptation? And I have this theory, Dove, which you and I have never talked about, but I have this theory that when the rate of hedonic adaptation is approximately the same, that makes for really good relationships between men Mm. and women. If you have somebody that gets over- Between between partners. Between partners. If you have somebody who gets over good events too fast, and, they, and they're on a treadmill, they need the next hit, the next hit, the next hit, the next hit. And there was somebody who gets over good events very slowly, right? Who Ooh. enjoys, some, you know, enjoys a good meal a day later, three days later, is still holding on to that, that wonderful feeling and is able to hold on to that, the joy they felt. It's really an incompatibility, Ooh. right? You, you want people who, who enjoy things and recover from enjoyment and and recover from negative experiences at approximately a similar rate. That's Otherwise, I think it creates great consternation. I think there's a lot to be said about hedonic adaptation and how people get along in the workplace as teams and also in interpersonal relationships. Yeah, I mean, that that's a great theory. I love that. And I could certainly spend a couple of weeks diving into that one. Uh, <laughs> I the, know, it's, it, but it is a theory. We should yeah, say but, but it, it's but it's but, but it's it's interesting because at the surface of it, the, the simple of it, we might say, you know, you're 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 too Pollyanna, you're too optimistic and you're too negative or you're too, you know, pessimistic. But the truth is, it's it's hedonic adaptation and the rates of those and that's that's very very interesting because it's the rate uh, of recovery it's a rate of recovery which then brings us back into this mental health issue that i believe it's my opinion i believe we're on the the brink of a massive emotional mental health catastrophe um because we're not dealing with what's actually happening we and because human beings are trained to push to the next thing we don't actually process and when we don't process we ignore history and i know that this is part of your work you're looking at let's look back so we can look forward and understand where we're actually going and oftentimes i think people don't want to look back they don't want to um they don't want to investigate history as i always say you know because i've studied american politics since the 60s late 60s and i always think that it's the thing I loved about Americans is they 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 move on pretty fast. But the thing I really dislike about them is they're pretty daft at looking back. And so they ignore their own mistakes as a nation and then repeat the cycle. And it's like, damn, come on, you could see that coming. And they have very short term memories. You know, suddenly, suddenly people um, in in, for instance, in 2018, were going like, oh, let's get George Bush back, George W. Bush, who they all thought was the worst president of history. Suddenly, he's now like a good guy. Well, you know, you've got a bit of a memory issue here. Um, So it's fascinating to me that we don't look back enough in order to move forward. And where I want to come in the next section is that we, in the complexity of all these things, which I think is part of why we don't want to look back, in the complexity of all these things, 
there is a, a neurological, psychological desire to make things simple. And it, I think in many ways that that's to the detriment of human beings. And I want to come in the next section to looking at this desire to move to the simple and the cost of that. And for you, dear listener, remember, we're just one click away from part two. So stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. We'll be back with Rebecca Costa in just a click.